Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. I got to sit down with theatre designer Sarah Bacon on the last preview morning of Dylan Coburn Gray's City Song. Sarah took time out from her busy life as a fugitive of the law, listen to the end for that ref, and talked with me about the images, ideas and threads of light behind her infinite City Song set design, creating and controlling a visual doorway into a night in the life of a heartbeating city. Sarah talks about her own pathway into theatre, a hybrid of disciplines and experience that led her to be the architect of her own design. We go on and talk about influential collaborations, the outsider's take on the imposter syndrome, the ever-increasing circle of research, and the frenetic dynamics of large family life. Enjoy this podcast. Last night I got to sit in uh, with City Song with an audience, and I was very excited for the cast to watch them, I suppose, respond with an audience in place and also to earn that laughter uh, that they've worked on, I suppose, in silence over the last few weeks. The audience is ever present in this production. Uh, Would you talk to me about your initial response to the script and the audience's place in that? My initial response? Well, the audience had no place in it initially. When I read Dylan's Coburn Gray's beautiful piece, it was like a poem. It was unlike any other play, if you like, that I'd been tasked to design. So my initial response was, wow, like amazing language and images and poetry and music coming off the page. And I was the audience, but I was, it's about Dublin and I'm from Dublin and I recognise, but it's also very universal. There's many universal themes of, there's a lot of sort of transition in the piece there's a lot of there's births there's sort of uh, characters transitioning from childhood to 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 adolescence there's aging and senescence there's the proximity of death there's new beginnings relationships there's lots of kissing there's lots of love. I just actually sitting watching it the other night. I was like, there's a lot of kissing in this play. <laughs> but kissing is sort of new beginnings. And uh, but the audience, I suppose, didn't come into it till later or to a sort of a light bulb moment. A few weeks later, I first time I read it, I put it down and went, wow. And then I read it again and went, what the hell are we going to do with this? How do you stage this play, this piece? Because um, there's many characters, I think. There's over 110 characters. There's uh, one of the main characters, if you like, is just simply called The Voice. So who is The Voice? What is The Voice? Um, and we shift all over the place, so all these locations, and it's very fluid. The whole thing is very fluid. So how also to let the language fly but not to not to sort of tie it down with any scenery um, or set design inverted commas. So uh, yeah, that was that was the first challenge. That was the the big challenge. So how did you hit upon the idea of the mirror? I, I presume that was you know you that I suppose there was echoes uh, of that within the script. Or was there, there was yeah. I mean there's a, there's talk. Are those reference to reflections and refractions and shattered glass and he he talks about the city when it rains and the Ouroborosy palimpsest of I mean Dylan's language is incredible but, um and how so it's how the the city is 
reborn in every second, in every because it's never the same in any from moment to moment. And so, Katrina McLaughlin, the director, and I were really scratching our heads to how are we going to do this, and we um, for one early design meeting and uh, not really knowing how to approach it. We just went on a dart trip out to Hoth and back up to Monkstown and back into town again. And the really interesting bit was as you come into town from both sides on on the dart coming into Colony Station and and you're sort of passing through the docks on the south side and all the, um, the buildings rising up around you and the glass and the... Ref- reflections and refractions and we definitely thought that was just one image we were holding on to that was something we wanted to that felt right for the piece but how to apply that we didn't know and how to locate the different characters and how far we needed to go with that or and I suppose Katrina wasn't sure at that stage how what her staging would be and with this it was sort of hand in hand with the what this design was going to be so I think there was a plan A that I as soon as I presented it to her I shelved it as well I was like that's a terrible idea and she was in America and she came back the, the next week and I just said okay this what about this she said oh I don't know what to do with that uh, I need uh, I'll need something more than that I said well we could put a door in it she goes, oh, that's great. That's perfect. That's all we need. And that was it. It was the easiest, um, I suppose, arrival at a design ever. I mean, it didn't feel easy up until that moment. But then it was like a, a, a eureka moment of, there There we go. That's that. It, it does seem such um, a straightforward and, and simple idea. And I say that in, insofar as... When I was reading the script, I was thinking, like, how are they ever going to, like, realise this and execute it? And, you know, I was thinking all sorts of, like, night times and rivers and thunder yeah. and all these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And then, and now that it is the mirror, uh, I can't see it any other way. <laughs> it, it, it just seems like it's such it's such an obvious choice that, I, yeah, I don't think, I, I can't see how it's possible to unsee it in some ways. Well, there was two images, or three images, that I was looking at, that I kept coming back to in my research and when you read a play and you might have ideas come into your head and you Google a few images and one was a beautiful photograph taken at night, St. Patrick's night, from the um, International Space Station and it's the whole city lit up and you just see these threads of the roads and lights and the the centre of the city is glowing and you can see the port and and then the blackness of the sea, the Irish Sea. It just was a great, a beautiful image and another image was just I had a map of Dublin in front of me, my desk and it was sort of broken down into uh, different demographic areas or various sort of... um, I think it was like religious breakdown of the city, but it was nicely graphically sort of broken down and you could sort of chart the river through it and there's a Phoenix Park and the edge and that was just a good visual, but just sitting on the desk. And then another was of a broken uh, mirror that was reflecting and we were talking about light and how, you know, the light and shade and the, the play starts at night and ends at night, and it's like 24 hours in the lifetime of a city and a person 
and the universe. And so that those three ideas came together in one. I think, I hope. <laughs> oh, it does. It's such a fantastic concept. I mean, when I look at the mirror, it gives so many clues to the audience. I feel as if it, it reflects the characters and it reflects us as audience members. But also when I look at it, it has this way of, of distorting us, and but it distorts memory and it's, it's alive and it's pulsating. When I got to see a run of it up in the rehearsal room, it was very bare storytelling. Then I came down into the auditorium and then you saw the performers and there was just layers of, of depth to it. It was kind of like a kaleidoscope. And then, and it does feel almost tangible that you can trace the line of the city, but also of, of, the, of the map and of memory and of, of this kind of legacy as well. And it has a very jigsaw-like effect that it has, um, it feels as if there's pieces of memory missing as well. Yes. And it's so, yeah, like and the character, all, Bridget's character, yes. who's losing words and memory. And, and that's just me, a punter, sitting there, like, getting all this information from this fractured mirror that sits in front well, of me. Well, that's lovely to hear. It's, I mean, I think a successful, like, Dylan's piece, it, it's, it's wonderful because it resonates and you're reading through it, but then there's certain moments that just go, for me anyway, straight to the heart that you... And I think for anybody in the audience, and there'll be different moments for, for everybody, like, hearing an audience last night reacting um, to the various moments in the play, it's, it's, it's great. It must be very exciting for him, but it's great for, for me to, to hear that. But my fear with having a big mirror on stage would be that it would overwhelm the piece and that it had to be very controlled. So early on, as soon as we had this idea, I spoke to Paul Kyogen, who's the fantastic lighting designer and said what do you think and he was all on for it we knew that we kind of had to it had to be a, a sort of a tight pretty tight design so you weren't just blinding your audience or overwhelming the piece and the actors on stage which is what you never ever want to do as a set designer so that's good to hear that <laughs> when you talk resonates. about Paul Kilgan, yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that collaboration because when I did saunter down to the auditorium during tech um I walked into the auditorium and I gasped out loud. I also cursed out loud in, 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 in the best kind of cursing because it was a good curse. And I was just, I was taken aback at how it looked. It, it um, Paul's LED lighting onto mm. it. I wasn't expecting that. Would you talk to me? His light curtain. Light curtain. Yeah. Will you talk to me about, I suppose, yeah, your initial idea and then you phone Paul Kjogan and you, you talk it through. And, and will you talk about the... I suppose, how to negotiate that vision between you? Well, that initial conversation was, I mean, if he had come back and said, no, we can't, we can't do that, it'd be too much. We'd have to, no, he's great, he was up for it. And, and then we came back with the floor, said, what about, you know, if we go for the high, shiny floor? So we're sort of replicating that, we're doubling the doubling and, and trying to get that infinity, sort of infinite feel to it. So he was saying, yeah. Bring it on. There does seem no line in it. It's so, um, because at times it feels, you, you take in the mirror when you come in and then you notice the floor and it feels at times that the cast are walking on water as well. And it's, it's lovely. So reflective, yeah. Beautiful in those moments. So when he si when Paul can side light it and not have light directly hitting the floor, the floor becomes this sort of uh, reflective pool, um, which is great, but it can't always be the case. <laughs> 
And in those moments, I'm staring at the sides, going, I wish those walls would disappear. You know, the black curtains, the masking. But, um, well, I, well, but when, hey. well, when you talk about those walls disappearing, you uh, this show is travelling to Soho Theatre in mm. London, so you have to consider that... Or did you have to? Con- you did have to consider that in sure. the design, yeah. And that's a much smaller theatre. This and it's going to have a different impact. It's going to fill it almost wall to wall, um. So, it'll be di- very different there. But I think it will be. Um, I'm dying to see it there. Actually, I think it'll be pretty spectacular. It'll and it's. A, I I had to think about those things. But Sally Whitnell, the amazing production manager, none of this would have happened without Sally. Um, she really had to think about it a lot harder than I did. <laughs> In ways of bringing this set over to London and making it and manageable. And making sure it was going to fit together and how, and in fact the whole build between herself and Ger Clancy who built it beautifully. Ger is a uh, uh, he's a designer and artist in his own right but he really did an amazing job because it, it was a simple idea once we hit on the idea, but it was actually very complicated to realise it. And that was done very well. And what does that involve? Because is every fragment of that glass cut out, um, laser, laser cut out? Laser cut, yeah. So is it all jigsawed together? Yeah, it's one big jigsaw. So it comes apart. If you look at the back of the set, it's in sort of rectangular pieces of uh, plywood and fixed to that are this jigsaw of acrylic, mirrored acrylic. But then there's the edges, the crossover, where it had to be worked out these tiny bits that are applied manually, but then there's a, a three millimetre tolerance between each piece, so they cut a three millimetre gap. Sally drew these at one-to-one scale on the computer and it took her, <laughs> I don't know how many times she did it, thanks Sally. But um, yeah, so there was a lot went into it. Is there a nervousness involved in what is an idea in your mind's eye and then bringing that to fruition? Yes, always. But probably it gets easier with experience, I suppose. You know, you know what's the, the process of design as you read the play, you read the play again, or you talk to the director, see if they have any kind of strong ideas, opinions. You start doing a a few sketches in a book or I do some sketch models. So I make a little model box, um, maybe at 1 to 50, and then later a bigger model box at 1 to 25 scale. And you you learn to trust that process. So uh, 10 years ago, I would have been sweating bricks before <laughs> before the set would arrive and sure enough there'd be things would be oh it's bigger than I thought it was going to be or it's smaller you know that uh, it's spinal tap moment <laughs> never quite that bad but you know we have those moments but um, thankfully not so much now but the learning curve is ever ever there when you talk about your process do you commit to paper very quickly or do you uh, percolate an idea until it's you know fully formed. Uh, I'm I'm definitely a percolator. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a committer. <laughs> yeah, but that's again that's part of the I've learned that's my process and I, I get there in the end. Late nights. And when do you? I suppose you know those re- eureka moments when you kind of have hit on the thing that you've been thinking through. You know when you're like, no, that's that's what I'm going with. 
Yeah, that's true. I think you do know when it's going to work. And I, you've it's often been a journey to get there because you might come up with what you think is a, a great idea, but it doesn't fit the director's vision or what the director, how the director wants to um, stage it. And of course, the design has to support. It has, it's not the thing that's out front. It's just a supporting act. I feel in the back that's um, so but sometimes it's a beautiful collaboration and can be um, fruitful within that and sometimes it feels no, not very often but sometimes it just feels like you're ticking boxes to make the show happen Do you have to pitch? I mean you talk about I suppose collaborating with the director do you, and, and that vision whose whose vision wins out? I mean do you have to do a lot of persuading? Or uh, every well, every director is different, so it it depends on the play or on the process or on the on the director. So it's nice then over time to work with directors ag- again and again because you start to build up a language, the shorthand, as I say, to you understand each other. You might get a knockback but then understand it's not actually a knockback they just need to think about it and come back or you understand why it doesn't suit their style of direction that they need something that's more expansive or they want something that's uh, the opposite that sort of feels very um, confined or yeah it depends yeah that's shorthand vocabulary some directors are very visual and have a clear idea um, about the look of a of a piece and some aren't they need to be presented with a fully sort of realized design and then go oh yeah that works and they do their thing and you do your thing i suppose there's always going to be that battle over um function and aesthetic Mm. and you have to work within those parameters yes yeah to serve the play always but i think uh function and aesthetic i think i would be naturally drawn to a sort of minimalism you know of pairing back always even if it's a maximalist sort of a play <laughs> um yeah to reduce reduce always and get to the essence of it yeah, that way yeah and allow the the actors tell the story and allow the the edges you maybe leave the edges to be filled in by the the audience that you're not telling you know not showing them everything that you leave something to the imagination for your set and costume designer for city song mm. will you talk to me about the costume design because it's it's very subtle and yet i know that nothing is on stage by accident mm. and i know that costume can affect the physicality of how an actor plays a role mm. you talk to me about that process on this one? Um, well, again, coming to the conclusion that we didn't want to, now we have a mirror on stage, how do we control, we talked about sort of controlling the the, the light within the mirror, it's also how do we control um, the costumes because they're going to be reflected and doubled and amplified in this mirror and we want the focus to be on the actors. We want the audience to hear the words, m- most importantly, so that they can follow this very sort of peripatetic uh, piece that they really have to be concentrating sometimes. So the cast, they're all in black. Everything, every garment is 
black. But sometimes they make subtle changes and they are sort of versions of themselves or versions of like the 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 uh, actors are comfortable in their clothes they don't feel like characters but also we can sort of overdress put on a uh, a jacket or a hat or something you know there's not too much of that going on we're not trying to explain the characters through costume but just little little twists here and there so I also with so many characters, over a hundred characters, costume changes. It's very um, it slows things down for a start, but I think fatigue can set in for an audience, and you just have to believe that they, you know, you establish the language of what well, this, these these actors are, are going to play all these characters. You you get it right. You get it. Okay, go with it. So and I think it seems to it seems to work. Oh, you go with it so quickly and they're a great cast the cast are fantastic in just bringing you so carefully and easily along with them and yeah. they're I mean I didn't realise it was over like did you say 100 characters I was thinking they swap genders and yeah, yeah they swap around in families and things like that and it's, it's just so easy to follow um, and the transitions are so swift that you just you just accept it yeah yeah I want to ask you about your training uh, what led you to study design, and was it originally what you wanted to do? Uh, theatre design, no. I didn't I didn't know there was such a thing, really. Did I? Well, I did, but it never occurred to me that it would be a thing for me. I think I wanted to... I wanted to go to art college in school, but I also kind of thought maybe architecture would be a, an option. So I ended up studying architecture for four years and then realised too many straight lines, too many uh, planning regulations, couldn't get my head around. But it was a great training. So it was really a great education and a great discipline. At the time it felt like a failure to drop out of architecture so far along, but I suppose I couldn't ignore the fact that it wasn't a good fit anymore. And then I, I don't know, foostered around Dublin for a couple of years and went off to art college in Brighton to do what was called, the course was called 3D design, but I wanted to do sculpture. I wanted to make sculpture, three-dimensional objects. And so that's what I did there. Uh, well, that was great. So I think, yeah, I, I saw, my head I wanted to be a sculptor, but I wasn't sure how to go about that but there I was in art college doing it it was after art college that uh, and that was brilliant three years in Brighton was fantastic so you became a, a sculptor well when I left art college then I I was in I was in America for a year or so and um was doing bits and pieces there I didn't have a visa per se so I was just sort of you know but I, I was going to the theater a lot actually Went to kind of off, off, off Broadway stuff, and I was friends with some set builders, Irish chippies, and uh, used to help them out. And you know, was doing bits and pieces. Uh, but again, theatre didn't seem like an option. That's what other people I knew were involved in, new actors, and like I said, set builders. But I still wanted to be an artist, <laughs> whatever that meant. So when I came back to Dublin a couple of years later, I got a studio 
And then I found I was just sitting in the studio, staring at the wall, going, what do I do now? I didn't have any, um, I suppose, peers in Dublin then. So I, uh, and also I didn't have any uh, money. So I did a false course in the SFX theatre. I thought, that, yeah, that's a good idea. And just loved it from day one. I loved, um, I did a lot of ASMing. Then as a false trainees, you were sort of sent off as free labour. So I did, as an ASM, you're sort of making props and working with the designer and, uh, and also working on the shows at night. I loved that. And I, like, I used to go to the theatre as a kid with my parents, but it still didn't, you know, so it didn't feel alien to me. I always enjoyed it, but it wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't something I, I thought you could do with your life. But suddenly this, and now suddenly I was working as an ASM and then working with great companies sort of opened my eyes up to the possibility of working as a designer, which, it, which is sculpture. It's, it's almost like it's a hybrid of architecture and sculpture. So it's funny, although I didn't have a clue what I was doing, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing to my mid twenties. Suddenly, everything that I had done seemed to come together, uh, or make sense, if you like, or lead towards something. So it sounds as if there was an awful lot of on-the-job training, um, and as you say, yes, every discipline you studied seemed to feed, uh, and you learned from it, and it fed onto the next thing. Yeah. So did you build up a portfolio and then head over to Motley? How no, did that happen? I, I suppose I just followed followed my nose a bit, really. And if an opportunity would come up to... I wanted to work in Wexford. My godmother had moved back down to Wexford. And I thought, oh, I'll, move, I'll do the opera festival down there and I'll see more of her. And um, I wanted to work in the prop department. I thought that'd be fun on an opera. Wouldn't that be great? Because uh, one of the placements I had done in... As a false trainee, I'd gone up to Castle Ward Opera in Northern Ireland. I don't think it's going anymore. But, um, and I had loved the whole... Uh, I, I wasn't familiar with opera as, a, as an art form at all. And I just... It's kind of mad work. You're know? talking about that because it's a different... Or is it a different way of thinking when you're designing for opera, and say, versus theatre? Yeah. Because I feel it's just, like, bigger more epic it's epic it's it's not subtle and but it's very um freeing i think as a designer there's more where often there's more you can take more poetic license if you like artistic license um and the cost uh, costume designs the same opera singers are very different to actors and yeah, things often have to be bigger and bolder, and you get away with broader brush strokes, maybe. Is it the same vocabulary? Is it the same language within those two mediums? Um, more or less. Yeah, maybe, maybe shinier and brighter with opera, or or broader statements, let's say, broader brush strokes. And the storytelling in opera is the audience have to suspend disbelief <laughs> you, know, you have to go and it's the music that carries you and that brings the emotion rather than so much the story I mean I don't know Lab OM for instance I always think it's a terrible story it's awful I can't bear it and yet I'm in tears at the last act every time so uh, and how do you do how do you reinvent 
Lab OM for a new audience each time, each generation. So it's a bit like approaching Shakespeare. A director wants to put a new kind of spin on it or bring a new idea, put a new idea across. Often a play is a play is a play. Where did you learn most? Where, where was the steepest learning curve? Was there any one production or any one experience that you learned most from? I mentioned there that I worked as an ASM for a few years and for two companies in particular. One was an uh, opera theatre company who were um, disbanded now. They're now sort of amalgamated with Irish National Opera. But they're a small touring company that really did uh, had very high production values on small budgets and they went to every theatre and town hall and cave and church and you name it around Ireland and that was really exciting to to work on those tours for a few years with great directors and designers and singers and then young Irish singers and great technicians and um, production managers and so you learned the nuts and bolts when you're touring like that you learn all aspects of the, the production from like front of house to rigging lamps to packing a truck to fixing a corset to uh, you know it's great as an ASM you're sort of floating between all the disciplines and I loved that uh, Pan Pan was another company that I worked with with Gavin Quinn and Aideen Cosgrove and that was brilliant introduction to theatre. I mean, they're one of the best theatre companies in Dublin, so I was very lucky to get in there and be working with them and their approach to design. Their uh, designer, Andrew Clancy and Gavin, would work very closely together. So they would always put a twist on a classic, maybe. And that was refreshing to see. Well, I'd say those two companies, I learned a lot working with them. Didn't feel like, I mean, it just felt like a job. But How long have you been one. working in theatre now? Uh, tw- um, I think I did the FOSS course in 2001. And then, so it took me a few years. I got down to Wexford. I was working uh, in the prop house the first year. Then I was head of props the next year and the next year after that. And... Uh, there was an opening. They do um, uh, the short works, which is like the the fringe festival part of the the Wexford Opera Festival, where they do one act or short uh, short operas, and they needed a designer. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I put myself forward to the production manager Dave Stoddard, and he very juice. He gave me uh, he gave me a go. He took a chance. And it, it worked, worked out well. And it has paid off. I, I wanted to ask you, because now you are an award-winning designer, and with that comes acknowledgement and recognition amongst your peers um, of your hard work and your talent. But does is there an amount of pressure that comes along with that afterwards? If there is, I don't feel that pressure. I think I feel another kind of pressure. <laughs> So that pressure I've probably diverted into. Um, uh, and I suppose because my journey into theatre was a bit circuitous and, I, and the people that I worked with are so passionate and always knew what they were doing and always wanted to work with theatre um, that I felt a bit like an outsider. 
so co- comfortable within that. But uh, so I was talking to Dylan about this the other day, actually, but it's still unbelievably um, a sense of I'm not really doing this. I'm waiting to be, till I grow up and become a sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> Imposter syndrome, isn't it? But I think that's, um, I have to admit now that maybe I've been doing this 18 years. <laughs> Probably do this for a little while longer. <laughs> you know then I'll be doing. a sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> there's, time yet. there's time yeah. yet. There's time yet. Um, I wanted to ask you about your background. Um, did you grow up in a creative household? I mean, looking back, it was supportive of creativity. My mum was a designer dress designer, couturier in the 1950s and 60s. Um, But she had given up the business in the early 70s when I came along. So I don't remember her being having that life or living that life, whereas I'm the youngest of seven. So my older sisters would remember her having her shows and not being around and working. I don't think she would have ever described herself as creative. She was amazing. She was a bit, Nelly Mulcahy was her name, and she was very talented but intuitive. She was. I don't think she would have described herself as artistic, or but she was. Um, she was a very intuitive designer, and practical, very practical. Mother of seven, everything had to have pockets. She used to make clothes for us that zipped up the back so you couldn't get out of them. You know. Um, so and she was very proud of any attempts. <laughs> <laughs> anything that we did I think maybe initially when I when I left architecture she might have been a bit worried to be going you know kind of straying from a safe path whatever that is but uh, but supportive always yeah I mean she was a groundbreaking designer in her day and I wondered did she I'm sure she blazed a trail back then because she was a career woman and ahead of her time highly yeah. educated six children and it's funny to hear you say that, and I know like she was celebrated with a, an exhibition in Collins Barracks ten years ago. And for me, seeing that exhibition, it was all, you know, I, that because, was because interesting. Because before it was your time, seen, before my time, it was like she was a legend. So I had this idea of Mum as this legendary uh, designer, but that wasn't the Nelly that I knew. She was just Mum. She was putting dinner on the table for nine people every every night you know that's not the idea you have of a of an international uh, fashion designer really having her uh, she lectured she continued to lecture did she later on she did in um, and examined in the Grafton Academy and I think she did occasionally in NCID I'm not sure I'd imagine that would have, or did it influence or deter you from that path in design? Because it, it sounds as if it, it wasn't a, a natural occurrence for you, and then you didn't see your mum in that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So as much as the influence probably was there, it seems very, um, like almost by osmosis, perhaps, or something. Well, well, I think of that now, and because, as you say, I do set and costume design, and if you had told me that coming out of school that you'd be, you know, going to be a costume designer I'd be like no way <laughs> and would that have <laughs> been because it, you might have or did you would you have ever thought that you would have been in her shadow or or that that was something as you say you hadn't connected the dots to well I think at that young age as well because you hear about the legend that's your mother 
um, you're told about it, not by her, but, you know, by other people. And you feel, well, you know, just about thread a needle. Uh, and also she never showed us or she never put that on any of us. Like none of my, uh, you know, none of us really directly followed her into the business, if you like, or into, um, I don't, I don't really know how to describe well, it. Well, now that you are a designer, do you enjoy the, not that there's a comparison, but it feels yes. like there's somewhat no. of a distance between what your mother did what and what enjoy you do. Is sometimes is knowing that that osmosis that you talk of that if my path was sort of architecture, sculpture, set design, I was about the spatial cre- creating the space on stage. But costume design started to come with some of those jobs. And when I trained in Motley, we were taught that it's a production design, and that it's preferable to do set and costume together because then you have sort of a, an autonomy over the, over the the look. Not to say it came naturally, but it didn't, again, it didn't feel alien to me to be doing that. I wasn't a struggle to do that. Uh, and then when I came into, when you're working with uh, costume supervisors who are so <laughs> experienced and have, and makers and tailors and like here at the Abbey, but I, I realized that I had the language because I had grown up with it, you know? And I'd seen my mum who's like even if she she stopped working she'd still be making wedding dresses or deb's dresses or suits or the, you know she was always running up things for herself or friends or family or talking she always had an interest in fashion or she'd see new fashions and be sort of describing them or or f- fabrics and you know her passion was irish fabrics and and quality you know real she designed like the iconic Erlingus uniforms That's and right, CIE. Yeah. The nuns. <laughs> the nuns? After the Vatican too, I think they got a change of uniform. Yeah. The hemline went up. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was optional though. Yeah. <laughs> but what, at what yeah, measurement? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'd say the ruler was brought out. Um, you, you're one of seven. I, and I, I come from a large family as well, and I'm always really interested in where you come in that family and, and what the ranking is. What the ranking well, is? Well, there's a natural kind of ranking. <laughs> <laughs> there's a figurehead oldest, and then there's the real oldest. And <laughs> so the seventh of, I'm the seventh of seven girls. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm number seven in the ranking. <laughs> We try not to talk about numbers anymore, apparently. <laughs> uh, but and there's also there's a, a quite a gap between me and my sister Karen next to me. So there was it's like there was six in steps of stairs, and uh, then eight years later I came out. I mean now it's great to have a big family, but when I was by the time I was a teenager, all my sisters had left home. So um, so were you um, because. In my family, there's, I certainly, I think I would take the place. I'm not e- not even the middle child, I'm one below the middle. So I'm the fifth oldest, third youngest, whenever, uh, whenever I want to work that. Yeah. Um, but when I look at my family, I think uh, there's kind of like, um, we're, we're certainly all versions of each other, but uh, I was certainly a daydreamer, you know, and I was uh, quieter. And I, I, as much as I talk, I, I do like to listen and I do like to observe a lot. Where, what were you, 
what was your place in the family? I suppose because everyone else had grown up ahead of you, you mm-hmm. probably had your mum to yourself. And yeah, mum and dad later on. But I think when I was young, like a small kid, I would have, I think, just naturally been an observer because there was so much action going on. There was such a busy household. Uh, there wasn't just my sisters, but all their pals. And there was always a, a, a sort of very open door policy <laughs> to the house. So it was always, yeah, it was a, it was a noisy household. And, and because it was, because my house was the same as kind of like a train station. Um, yeah. Did that um, make you kind of find quieter places, do you know, or? Well, I think I loved being in the middle of it, whereas I wouldn't have been a driving force within it at all. I was a little kid, but I loved the circus that went on uh, around me. And I think I definitely missed that when I was older and they were gone. But I also appreciate that I had my parents to myself and we got on very well. And then, like I said, I I would have had these opportunities that my older sisters wouldn't have had, as in I would have gone to the theatre with mum and dad. No, they weren't big theatre goers, but if there was something good on and I'd be taken along or... Do you remember what you saw in the theatre? And oh, I want to ask you... I remember seeing, because my dad is... Um, he would have always liked the works of Samuel Beckett. So I remember going to the gate a few times to see... Certainly, I remember seeing Godot, Waiting for Godot. And a beautiful production, and that's sort of sparse... Um, design and I remember going to see Hamlet uh, I think the RSC came to Dublin pretty sure it was in the Olympia it was Hamlet in pyjamas I <laughs> I'd say I was quite young I can't remember when that was but uh, that don't remember anything about the production except that he was in pyjamas so <laughs> something went in I had a different upbringing let's say to my elder sister who's 18 years older than me and did they, the older ones, uh, become like a second set of parents to you? Or did, does that happen? Uh, I think they were... I mean, Mum, although she had stopped working by the mid-70s, she never sat still. She never sat down. She never... I mean, she was out the door. So my, my sisters definitely not so much reared me, but certainly where I was entrusted to them a lot, <laughs> maybe more than they wanted. I want to ask you about, was there a production that changed your perspective on what you thought theatre could be? I don't think there's any one production I can think. I mean, I've seen some great productions that have surprised uh, and delighted, and but, but no, not any one thing. I think it's just like little light bulbs along the way, like and some great opera productions as well. And but as much, I mean, I'm still interested in visual art, and I think visual artists more than uh, that I would have admired or studied in college influenced me as much as any um, set designer. Though I admire lots of set designers and look at their work and. Uh, maybe like I was saying, working with Pan Pan or, you know, because I didn't have an education in theatre and I wasn't aware of post-dramatic European theatre or anything like that. So that probably opened my eyes to what I found entertaining or interesting or challenging. Can you sit back and enjoy a production uh, without reading it all the time? 
That's a funny question because I suppose you're always interpreting it. Oh, a production that yeah, that, I've that isn't on, yours. Or, yeah, no, that you're just um, enjoying as a punter. Oh yeah, oh definitely, yeah. But are you always um, switched into? Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Or why did they do that? Mm, not so much. Uh, not so much. I might be looking at at like really st- stupid things like the masking. <laughs> you You're know? mad about the masking. Oh, I'm mad for the masking. <laughs> the edges, you know. Make sure the edges are neat. But I, I don't think I would um, question a design. I think I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'd be critical about my own work more, more than another. I think if I do, I don't get to the theatre much these days. Um, but if I do, I just go to enjoy it, unless it's really awful. <laughs> then you want your money back. Then, <laughs> then see me in the bar. Yeah. What does it take to stay in design in Ireland? Hmm. What does it take to stay in design? I suppose it's a combination of things. I can only speak for myself, and I feel it's... Uh, Partly a big dose of uh, luck <laughs> and hard work, and um, who you've been working with. Like I said, if you you, you kind of have re- work with directors repeatedly, so if they get the work and they bring you on as a designer. So I've been lucky in that respect. Um, but it's hard. It's hard out there for designers in general. So I'm, I mean, I'm having a good year. I've done some lovely work with great directors, and uh, but it's not always like that. So it is, it can be a bit of a roller coaster professionally. So being able to sit that out is one thing, and being a, like being a freelance artist in any medium is challenging but also I suppose the feeling that I can't do anything else and I and actually now I've come to the point despite the imposter uh, syndrome I don't want to do anything else at the moment so uh, what does it take to be a designer though yeah just what's the word I'm looking for tenacity tenacity (laughs) yeah what keeps you sane in those quieter moments when you're not working? Well, when I'm not working, I'm catching up with all the other things that fell apart when I was working. Like, um, you know, domestic... Your life. Domestic <laughs> stuff. Paying the car tax. That's, oh my God, eight months out of date. Got stopped. Sarah, yeah, I know. Got stopped by the guards the other night on my way home from the first preview. Hi. And I thought... Hello, that's guard. because I've been working in theatre. <laughs> that's a really, it's a lame excuse. <laughs> How'd you get out of that? Uh, well, I had my five-year-old daughter in the back seat and she started crying. <laughs> so, must remember to bring her Thank everywhere. <laughs> remember what we talked about. <laughs> uh, as soon as the guard said he was entitled to seize the car, she started crying. So he let us go. I have, I have, oh, car, yes. I have paid my car tax <laughs> now, though. So that's that's what I do in the downtimes. But the thing with um, theatre design, I mean, you could sign up to a job that's next year, mm. 
and it will just expand to fill all the time. Once mm. once you kind of commit to a job, you're on. So it's not like a rehearsal period where it's five weeks rehearsals and then we're on stage. It's not. It can be months and months that it's in your head or you're meeting the director or... You don't get paid for that kind of time, no. right? So it's in your bloodstream for a year in advance, months in advance. Can be, yeah. It's always taken away. Last question, what keeps you in the game? What keeps you at this? Um, the, the people. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I feel very fortunate to have found my way into this. Almost it feels accidentally. Um, and like I've said repeatedly in this interview, <laughs> I thought I wanted to be a sculptor, but I found that you, you were working on your own. And what I love about theatre is all the people, you know, the whole, it's a massive collaboration um, that uh, an audience really are thinking of, maybe mostly the writer and the director, the actors and what they're seeing on stage. But it's everything that happens behind the scenes, literally with the... Um, the stage management team which are so critically important to the smooth running and enjoyment of a production working on a production the production manager who's key to bringing it all together the technical team the you know the people who work in the theatre who run the building itself if you're touring or like we are here at the Abbey it's the people yeah yeah definitely so, Begin, we've gone over time. I'd like to thank you for your time this morning and for chatting with me, and I'll let you get back to work. Thank you, Lisa Ferry. <laughs>